Welcome to this week's episode of our uh, Resisting the Dragon's Beast podcast. I'm Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Peter Hagen. We're going to be looking at the chapter entitled Fear on page 161. And so for those who are watching this on YouTube, my background I chose today is Tatooine. That's the desert planet with the two suns because... Uh, the beginning of this chapter, I reference Tatooine. So uh, the first three paragraphs there. In Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, Jedi Knight Qui-Gon Jinn finds young Anakin Skywalker on the desert planet of Tatooine. Anakin is strong in the Force. So Qui-Gon Jinn brings Anakin before Master Yoda and the rest of the Jedi Council. But Yoda can sense great fear within the boy. Yoda gives this sage advice on fear. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Uh, hate leads to suffering. Anakin spent 10 years fearing that he would lose his mother. After a dream of his mother being captured and tortured by the Tuscans, Anakin flew to his home planet on Tatooine, found his mother bound inside the Tuscan tent in the desert, freed her, and then released his anger by slaughtering all the males, females, and even children in the camp. Later, Anakin had another dream of his wife Padme dying. He was looking for a way to prevent her death. It was this fear of abandonment that led him to feel betrayed by his master, Obi-Wan, and the entire Jedi Council. He then turned to Emperor Palpatine for guidance and trusted a new master. In doing so, Anakin turned to the dark side of the Force. So with that introduction, Peter, when is fear good and healthy? And then we'll do a follow-up question of when is fear uh, bad and unhealthy? Oh, boy. <clears throat> I thought you were going to ask me a question about Jar Jar Binks. I was all set for that. Okay, well, go ahead and make up that I had a question about Jar Jar Binks and answer that one first. I, I definitely believe that Jar Jar Binks was a Sith Lord, and um, and it was just <laughs> a plot hole that got him uh, removed from the scene. Okay. That shows the extent of my Star Wars. Is it Star Wars or Star Trek? Uh, insight there. Star Wars. <laughs> well, just before we started recording, I was watching a little bit inside of Firefly. So that's a very, very geeky TV show. I mean... It's Star Trek, Star Wars, that type of genre, and yet it's very uh, not well known because it was only on for one season, and then it came back for a movie, but that's okay. We'll use Firefly for another time, okay. Peter. That sounds fair. Uh, I think when we're talking about fear, um, the among the other things that come to mind um, is probably a book entitled The Gift of Fear, and, um, and in the book, the author Gavin DeBecker uh, makes the case that that humans have fear for a purpose, that fear serves a purpose of alerting us that something is out of the ordinary, that something is potentially hazardous or dangerous, or something that we need to pay attention to. And so I think in, in that regard, um, fear can be, a, can be a helpful thing when it is kept in its proper place. That fear can alert us to the fact, oh, I am I'm driving far too fast for these conditions and I almost slid off the road. You know, for instance, um, or or other fear of, you know, like uh, 
if heart disease runs in your family and somebody has a heart attack, then all of a sudden everybody in the family is like, oh, I should pay more attention to, um, to my activity and what I do and, and how I manage this. Um, and so in that sense, fear can, can be a bit of an early warning of a potential danger, um, a hazard, a potential danger. And it can then lead us to think more deeply about it to say, how should we react to this? How should we respond to this? Um, how do we mitigate the risk and, um, and deal with that fear? Yeah, exactly. You came up with some great examples of fear being healthy so that when we notice something uh, that, okay, this is a good, healthy fear to keep me safe. Okay. But the key is that fear can also be bad and unhealthy, that it can be crippling, that if we have such a strong fear that we allow it to overtake us, then we don't do anything. And so the key is to, to balance that. And, uh, the, with that, you know, why do we have an unhealthy fear? You know, I mentioned in the book a little bit, a few pages after this, what we're talking about here on page 161 and 162 is that fear is one of the best tools that the devil has in his tool belt. And maybe liken it like a tool, like a crowbar. And what he does then is he is getting that crowbar in between us and God, and he's using that to pry us away from the solid foundation of God and his word. Yeah. And I guess together with that, um, in a, in a worldly sense, fear is still under, um, the realm of human reason. We use it in an external sense. Um, spiritually there is the fear of the Lord, which is the, the awe of being in front of Holy God. And that's a fearful thing for sinful people. Um, but the fear of the Lord is also this, this healthy respect that, that recognizes God is powerful and I am not. And it's only by his grace that I stand here. Um, and so in that respect, the issue with fear, the problem with fear is that we try to use a tool that is useful perhaps in the world or according to human reason. And then we apply it to spiritual matters, um, and, and try to use that with our own, our own abilities. And so if we are afraid of something, um, you know, like afraid of death or what, you know, fill in the blank, afraid of, of guilt or shame. Um, and then we try to solve it on our own tools using our own efforts. That is an entirely different thing than the healthy fear that God talks about in scripture. Um, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is understanding where you stand in res in relation and in respect to God. Um, and never getting like, too big for your britches like you can just waltz into the presence of god as if he is not holy um or or thinking that you have outgrown your need for god because now you have overcome your, your fear and i think this is this is an interesting one because fear and sin um are intimately related um that sin should be a reason why we are afraid of god but modern evangelicalism, um, and you can see this in music and not every music and not every element of modern evangelicalism, modern evangelicalism has really focused on fear and kind of use that as a stand in for sin. So their songs might use, I'm no longer a slave to fear because Christ has, Christ has been victorious over death. And the temptation there is that we get away from a sin and grace idea and you know biblical idea of sin and grace and we get to 
Um, Jesus is just here to help me attain my full potential. And what is holding me back is my fear instead of Jesus has to remove the block of sin between me and God. And he is the one who is my ongoing source of this new spiritual life. Yeah, I just started teaching the Ten Commandments yesterday to my seventh graders. And so we were starting with the first commandment of fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And so I asked them what fear means, and they came up with respect. And I said, well, should we be afraid of God? I said, no. I said, no, absolutely. We should be afraid of God. I, I think we've, as pastors and people, taken the fear out of that word fear, and we just make it respect of God. No. We're sinners. We are enemies of God and by nature. And so we should be terrified of what a holy and just God will do to weak, miserable sinners like us. Uh, and so we should have a healthy fear. And then I explained, like, my grandfather, uh, I said, my grandfather, Grandpa Parcham, I, I'm the oldest of 18 grandchildren. And we spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. And I had a couple of cousins, especially three brothers. They were, they were naughty. They were naughty kids. And yet uh, when they got to grandpa and grandma's house and they wouldn't eat, if any of us wouldn't eat, grandpa would stand up and he'd start unbuckling his belt. He wouldn't say anything, just start unbuckling his belt. And, you, and I asked the kids, you know what happened? Immediately, the kids started eating, even those naughty three, three boys. Why? And I said, because... I don't remember my grandfather ever unbuckling his belt, let alone pulling it off and using it on someone because they knew you don't mess with Grandpa Parchin. Okay. Mm -hmm. You there was respect, but there was also fear because if he said something, he was going to follow through with it. And that's what we've uh, we've taken that away from our God. We just say, well, God is just loving. And we don't fear the judgment part. The, uh, he is also just. So then building on that, Peter, when we are afraid of going alone, of what does scripture remind us about our God? Because I talk about in 162 uh, that on that page that when the devil is prying us away from God, one of his best tools is to say, we're alone. We are by ourselves away from our God. So when we're afraid of going alone, what does scripture remind us? Uh, a couple different areas, um, basically that Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Um, one of my the, the places that sticks out for me the most, I guess, in re relation to that is Hebrews chapter 13, which is kind of a grab bag of um, topics at the end of the letter to the Hebrews. And it, and it begins and it kind of transitions from topic to topic. And one of the topics talking about keep your lives free from the love of money. Um, and then he concludes that, you know, three verses by saying, because the Lord has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So I should say, what can, what should I be afraid of? What can man do to me? Something like that. And so in that particular case, um, God was talking about one particular fear. You know, when, when he was talking about, in that instance, the love of money, and that if I feel afraid of tomorrow, then I need to make sure I have enough wealth stored up for today. And God draws a direct line between greed in that case, and, um, and fear that God will leave you alone and will not be there 
uh, when when you need him. Um, and it's exactly the same thing that we see in the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. And if you read that section in the small catechism, Luther gives us like five lines on what is involved with daily bread, uh, clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, land and cattle, um, good neighbors, good government. And he just goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, and so we really don't need anything to be afraid of anything because, I mean, first of all, God is omnipresent. Um, but that second of all, not just that God is present everywhere, but that because you've been baptized, um, God is has promised to be present with you with all of his gospel grace, um, with all of his gifts. And so what do you have to fear? Like death? Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. The devil? Jesus crushed the devil. Uh, the world. Jesus um, said, take heart, he has overcome the world. So what are, what is it that we are afraid of? Yeah. Another promise is Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be overwhelmed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And then I use the illustration of my young, youngest daughter, Belle, that when she was five years old within that same week, she learned both to swim and to ride her bike. Now, uh, she ended up falling a few times and scraping herself up. She went under the water and swallowed some water, and yet she learned how to do both of those things. And why? Because she had her father, me, running behind her, uh, being the shallow end of the pool. I'm not a good swimmer, so I didn't take her in the deep end to try and save her because uh, she'd have to save me with her little floaties in her arms. And the, But the key is the Father was there, and that's the key for us with God. He is our Father. He is right there with us, with his righteous right hand. So like you said, what do we have to be afraid of? Uh, we may appear like little scared and weak boys and girls to the devil, and yet he's going to run away because we have a father standing behind us. But then with that question of what are, what are we so afraid of applying this to 2020 and 2021 with COVID, uh, how might fear have induced Christians into doing unchristian things within their churches during COVID? Good question. Um, because we're dealing with with two major types of fears, and there's probably more. Um, well, I can think of three, I suppose. Number one, there's the personal individual fear of sickness and death. Like, who wants to sign up? Sign me up for a headache. Sign me up for body aches. Sign me up for. Um, in in my experience, when I had when I had COVID, I was um, I just slept for like thirty hours straight, and um, and did not feel. It wasn't. I didn't feel wonderful. Right. <laughs> Nobody did. Um, so there's the individual fear of of not knowing not liking to be sick and not knowing what that's going to be like there's the the group fear of somebody else has chosen a different idea and what is the actual you know different approach um and what is the actual truth here what is it what is the right thing to do and so there's the group fear of i've I'm on one side of the fence and this other person that I care about and worship with is on the other side of the fence on any particular question or topic. Um, and then there's the societal fear, which is to say, and <laughs> I guess governments and lawyers are good at, at doing this where they like lawyers, they, they'll send a scare letter, um, you know, please do this or else, or else we will file charges against you or, you know, who knows, who cares? Um, 
and governments kind of do the same thing because oh no he's this person has signed an executive order and so therefore now it's a now it's a law that i have to obey and now what's going to happen if i do the wrong thing or if i'm on the road at the same time that that this you know this person gets pulls me over so there's like three different consecutive layers of fear there's the individual personal um, there's the individual in a group but then there's also societal fear and you combine all those together and it's like wow well we need to parse it out you know number one good civics helps like the government doesn't have a right to stop church services when they aren't applying that same rule evenly like if everything is shut down and martial law has been declared then okay costco is shut down and the liquor stores are shut down then close your church <laughs> but if we're going to pick and choose that's not actually a constitutional application of the first amendment that's an oligarchy um, <clears throat> and corporatism where the government gets to pick the winners um and that isn't anything to be afraid of that's you know when you've been informed a little bit of knowledge it takes you a long way and say oh here is one place where i still have the the right and that i don't have to be afraid of that particular you know threat or boogeyman yeah and we're going to look in a little bit specifically in the churches, but, you know, in our communities, you know, think of, we were told to stay away from hospitals. And then we did that. And, you know, I'll tell a story with each of these, you know, I remember this was after hospitals were opening up again. And one of our members had, had died. And then I had a massive heart attack. And then they said, they being the doctors and nurses. Well, well, he had COVID, and so therefore the family can't come. Well, his family fought that and said, uh, no, he had COVID two months ago. If he has any residual effects of COVID, it's just the antibodies. But I was told uh, that I, couldn't, I could come to the hospital. The doctors said I can come. So I wore my clerical collar. I went to the hospital, and then they said no. And I, and I told them, uh, I have permission from the doctors and nurses that I can come. And I would suggest you letting me in because you don't want to talk to the daughter. And they didn't let me in. I called the daughter and she was livid because she didn't want the chaplain, hospital chaplain to come. She wanted, and she had told him this, I want our pastor, my dad's pastor needs to be there. And so she was going to call and just lay into the, the doctors and nurses. And I said, just call them. And then say, you have a job to do. I understand that. But you're not letting my pastor do his job. And she did. And a half hour later, you know, the, the head nurse called me. And I, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. You should come. Come right now. <laughs> so that was one thing is we didn't stand up. Another one is, you know, invasion of privacy when it came to, well, how are you feeling today? And especially when it came to the COVID shot. And we allowed people to ask us this. That's illegal. And so when we had, uh, there was one assisted living center that I would go to, and we had a sign in, how are you feeling today? What's your temperature? All, all kinds of questions. And then when that COVID shot came out, then they added that. Have you had your COVID shot? And I began writing down NYOB. I don't know if they ever figured it out, but it meant none of your business, N-O-Y-B, none of your business. Because it wasn't. And if they, if they would have said that, um, if said anything, challenge me, I would have said that too. Uh, and then I remember having, I only had one person connected with our shut-ins ever asked me if I'd had the, the COVID shot. 
I was going to visit her mom and I said, you know, I don't like talking about that because it's become very political. And so uh, I, I'll talk about my colonoscopy if you want. And she laughed and said, no, I don't want to talk about that. I said, okay, I don't either. And I really hadn't had a colonoscopy. But uh, And then one last thing, this was mentioned by one of our members last week after our Bible study on the book. She said, Pastor, what should I have done? Because her son had died in 2020 and she wasn't able to have a funeral. And so they were able to have uh, her, her son was connected with her high school and the high school did fantastic. And they had a huge parade of vehicles go by the family outside and honk their horn and wave at them and so forth. There was a great show of support, but the family never had that closure being able to hear God's word. They may have devotion with them, but not a, a funeral sermon and meeting people and so forth. And she asked, well, what should I do? I said, first of all, you forgive uh, the experts and the lawmakers and so forth, but then you don't hold, then you hold them accountable. You let them know you're forgiven, but then you say, you should never have done this. And I don't want you to ever do this again. And that's one of the things that, as experts and politicians are trying to gaslight us to say, well, we never shut down schools. We never said you couldn't have funerals. Well, no, they did. We have to hold them accountable in some way. So those are unchristian things. But also, Peter, let's look specifically. What about in churches? What were some unchristian things inside our churches that we allowed to happen? Um, boy. I mean, I, I know I was, this, is, I this still... is pointed and touchy, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm going to delay a little bit, but I get off on the, the slight little tangent of um, of the government saying that we didn't infringe upon your First Amendment rights to, to mm -hmm. you know, free expression of your religion. Yet that was the policy of the hospital. That was the hospital's policy, and we aren't accountable for that. And uh, I think that is that is one thing that that Americans should be, pay more attention to is basically the government relying on uh, corporations in order to institute a policy. Um, you know, a good example of that would be, you know, First Amendment provides for the freedom of speech. Um, and so Twitter as a privately owned or stockholder owned, whatever it is, uh, corporation says, well, you can have freedom of speech, but we're not going to guarantee you freedom of reach, meaning we're not going to let your your words be seen or read by anyone else. Um, and so, you know, I think that that is one thing that we need to pay attention to. That's totally aside from the Patriot Act and uh, and the snooping that was brought in on that wave <laughs> of patriotism. Yep. Um, but we're already 20 years past throwing out most of the Bill of Rights. You can that Wikipedia is a rabbit hole and a half. <laughs> so get ready for that when you start reading about the Patriot Act. Um, so then back to your other question, what what was it that Christian churches did? Um, what, what did we not do? <laughs> I mean, on, on the one hand, there was the initial like three months where everybody, you know, you see the video out of Italy with just caskets or, you know, caskets and coffins um, lining the church inside and like, wow, maybe this is worse than I thought. Um, and so after after that initial, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, two years to flatten the curve, whatever it was, after that initial two to three months of figuring it out, um, the fact that churches still refrain from holding worship 
um, refrain from Holy Communion, refrain from the common cup, refrain from private counseling, um, the required masks or required other um, shot verification. Have you have you had a vaccine? As if there's like a a list that somebody is keeping keeping track of these things um, to deal with private medical questions. Um, and and really making the default that you know you can you can worship online from your couch the same way that you can in person. Um, it is still valid to hear the word of God from your couch. Mm-hmm. I would be cautious about. Um, well, let's make sure that you're making yourself appropriate for for worshiping God. Like you wouldn't walk into church in your bathrobe and your and your bedhead all you know everywhere over your head um so if you're going to worship at home then you know get cleaned up put on a shirt and tie or whatever it is and sit down and worship and um and you know on top of that that doesn't even get into the question of schools i mean personally i was glad that i didn't have to try to manage a school during during um, all the questions that were associated with covid especially in the years after but i think just generally that we you know, one of, one of the biggest ones that I saw was um, stigmatizing children as as little spreaders of disease, especially when when children were the least affected, um, statistically. And, uh, and then on top of that, then we've got um, a politicization of personal health choices, where you see a visible is a person visibly wearing a mask or not, um, as well as a broadcasting of, you know, their status and whether they've been vaccinated or not, or what that means um, can kind of go on from there. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things that I thought of is, and, and first middle of page 164, I highlighted this in my book just because I liked this sentence that the cure for COVID became worse than the disease. And then we see in the next paragraphs about some of the things that we did in the church. I'm going to call unchristian, just call it like I, I see it, that what did we do? Well, we allowed the government and experts to close our churches. We fight to keep our churches open in other countries. And yet, what did we do? Oh, okay, we're going to close it here. Now, some will push back and say, well, we didn't know. Yeah, we didn't know, but we should have known. You don't close that the Christian church in a time of illness, that's the time when people need the church. And, and don't, like you were saying, Peter, don't drive them to online. Uh, my associate Nathan and I were just working on our VTO, our vision traction organization. It's a six-year plan, then working back backwards for three year and one year. And one of the things that we had done three years ago when we wrote this in uh, February of 2021 we said, well, 15% online worship. Okay, that was still in COVID kind of. And and I like what Nathan said. He said, no, we should try and get that not higher, like 15% of our members. We should try and get that to 0%. Okay, now there's, we're never going to get that way and that's fine. But I don't want people relying on online worship. That's an emergency type situation. What are some other things? Together yeah. with that, that um, 
online worship is definitely a thing in evangelicalism, um, and it has been for a long time. And it's, I'm glad to see that no, more of our churches are now um, have their services online. But let's treat it as a side door, like it's accessible, it's there, your shut-ins can participate, and then pastor or elder will come and bring them the Lord's Supper, because we are a means of grace church body, because that's the way the Bible describes it. And, um, and, and then we need to restore some sort of fellowship for that as well, because it's, it's not a total one-for-one -one replacement. Yeah. And there were other things that we did that were non-Christian was we, we limited the number of people in worship. At first it was, but you can only have 10. And then it was uh, based on the size of the church. It might be 50. You know, that was our size. And then having people sign up online. Oh, you're number 51. You can't come. That's unchristian because there's no, there was no science behind that. Like we talked about early in the last chapter, there was no science to say, okay, only 50 people or hundred people. There's nothing to that. Uh, another thing would be that we weren't singing. Because something came out early on in COVID where there was a choir that a bunch of them got sick. So that must be because you're spreading more germs because you're expelling air while you're singing. Uh, someone told me about one church they knew of where they could only sing certain hymns because you're a lower register. You weren't expelling as much air. But these other hymns, now you're going to be singing loudly and expelling more air. So those were off limits. Come on, where's the science in that? Where's the Christianity in that? Uh, another one is, and I know you added the, the line here about uh, doing the online communion and uh, people doing that. Uh, but I would think even that there, there were churches, and I think there are still churches that do this, uh, the weird happy meal you know, of communion where you've got this little wafer in, in one side in a sealed package. And on the other side is the wine in a cup and you kind of peel it open and so forth. Say, oh my goodness. It, so those are all things where we weren't trusting God. And we're going to look at that in a little bit of what does it mean to test God is we allowed uh, a lot of things to come into our churches that we should have just said, no, this is the way the Christian church has worshiped for centuries during black plagues and the spanish flu and so forth and this can't be any worse than those things okay yeah yeah <laughs> and, and that was like the one of the mind-boggling things um about pastors trying to offer holy communion via youtube mm -hmm. which is uh it's totally against the character of the supper it, it and and in many cases, not not necessarily all of them, but in many of them, they were in churches that previously hadn't uh, held a very high view of the ministry or of or of the Lord's Supper. But then all of a sudden, now um, now it's a pandemic, and cue the music, and Pastor has is doing this like this cool video where he's sitting at his kitchen table, and look, we're all having fellowship together because hashtag Lord's Supper. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't just know. Kinda, just kind of shake your head. Yeah, I know. Since you added that. I don't know if there were any of our Lutheran churches that were doing that. I don't know if you heard if there were. I I heard of one, um, okay. and they may have been doing it um, since even before uh, oh. COVID had started or shortly before, and um, and I think it has since been corrected. 
Um, well, it has, I know. And, um, and I know that there were a number of churches in the Missouri Synod that, um, that dealt with this um, as well. And okay. in most cases, it was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the reason I ask is because we as Lutherans should always be concerned about borrowing anything from another non-sacramental service or church body. So if, like you said, the evangelicals are doing that, they do not have a high view of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so, yeah, they're going to do some weird things because, for example, they don't believe it's really Christ's body and blood. So they can just have it as, like I teach in my class, it's just grape juice and crackers, like a snack after your soccer, your kid's soccer game. So for them to have communion uh, all together because they're worshiping online, that's not a big deal because they're just eating together. For us as Lutherans, we should not be borrowing any those kinds of things from a non-sacramental church because they don't view, well, they don't view the sacraments as God's sacraments where it's really uh, Christ's body and blood connected with the bread and wine to give us forgiveness through life and salvation. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I talk on the next page, 165, you know, we were wavering between precaution and paranoia. And that's not a good place to be. And then, you know, with the masks and the shots and so forth, we were virtue signaling. Either way, you know, we were on one end of the spectrum or the other end. We were just virtue signaling. Uh, so another question I have then, when is it wrong and fearful to test God? Because that's the heading on page 165 about testing God. And here's one thing that I got pushed back from our own members. So when is it, when is it wrong and fearful to test God? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... And when we talk about testing God, um, I think most narrowly when we're talking about it as a bad thing, we're talking about you, you, sorry, you know what God says in his word, like to do this or to not do that. And, um, and you're daring him to follow through with, um, with it. And so the devil says, you know, throw yourself down because God promises to catch you. And Jesus says, no, that's testing God because he knows what God has said. And now he is daring God to prove it and follow through. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, testing God, we can't be testing God when we are making a simple rational human argument um, in, in something that has data on both sides, for instance. Um, you can, you know, is, is it testing God to drive a Honda Civic or a Toyota Camry? Well, neither one is demonstrably better. Both are superior to everything, everything else. Um, <laughs> neither one is demonstrably better. And God hasn't spoken about driving either a Camry or a Civic in scripture. And so you just make a rational human decision. Um, but trying to import that idea of testing God into the realm of, of human reason and decisions that are based on human reason. Um, I think, I mean, that number one, that is, that is testing God before we even get into, is this, you know, wearing a mask or not, is that testing God? It, it is testing God to try to force his word to say something that it doesn't say. It's yeah. testing God to say, you know, Jesus is Palestinian. It's testing God to say Jesus would wear a mask. It's testing God to say Jesus would stop worshiping together. Um, because those are things that scripture did not say, has not said, will not say, has not ever said. 
and Jesus still is Jewish. I think that's two podcasts in a row. I've said that. There you go. And, and in this context, it would be, you know, believers should not test God by exposing themselves to needless danger, expecting God to protect them. Okay. So like this morning I had an adult confirmation class, with a new prospect at our Caledonia camp. So it's about 10 miles from my house. So it would be sinfully testing God to go on the busiest streets and put, putting myself in danger when I'm biking there. Okay. And then expecting God to keep me safe. But the next thing though, is when is it righteous and faithful to test God? Because that's where I was pushing back against members who would say, Pastor, Scripture says, Jesus himself says we shouldn't test God. And I said, yeah, but Scripture also says we should test God. Malachi <laughs> says, bring the complete tithes of the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Just test me in this, says the Lord of armies. See whether I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour down blessing on you until there is more than enough. God wants us to test him. You know, there, when I teach that verse to say, with stewardship, I say, God wants you to test him. He wants you, because we often give with our hand, or our closed fist, and we, he has to pry the money from us. He says, you open up my hand, or you open up your hand, and then let God take out what he wants, and then you're going to need two hands to hold everything. That's a righteous testing. So again, using my biking as an illustration. So I'm going to try and take the safest route to go the 10 miles to Caledonia or back. And then, because if I don't test him, then I'm just going to be fat and lazy and riding in my car. Okay. You know, I could do that, but I'm not going to be as healthy as if I'm, you know, getting out there and exercising. So I need to actually test him in this. And so, so with that, I think part of it is, uh, you know, you can answer this too. When is it good and faithful to test God? Uh, I th think part of it is when it comes to, you know, dealing with COVID is to test and say, God has given us these wonderful bodies and everything that he gi gives us, you know, to filter things out, just like the little nose hairs, you know, in our nose to filter a lot of this stuff out. And then when we get sick, to be able to have these, uh, you know, beautiful lungs, beautiful bodies. You know, I was looking, I'm going to probably look at getting, I told my wife the other day, I said, you know, I realized this week I'm getting older. She was at 53, you're finally getting older. And I said, well, uh, tomorrow I have to go to the dentist to, to start, uh, about getting an implant for a tooth. And then next Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day, also go to a surgeon about cataract surgery. So two major things. And, but before I looked at cataract surgery, I was looking at, oh, what kind of vitamins, what kind of supplementals can I take? And I talked to you about those things. Can I take to maybe cure it? Now, I think my cataracts are probably too far gone. I should have been doing this kind of stuff earlier, but God has given us these things in our own bodies and in nature. A righteous testing is going and finding those things and making use of them. Definitely. And, um, and like a, a good testing, um, is like you have, you have a clear command from God you've got, um, clear, clear word from God. 
and um, and you've given it some thought, thought it through, talked with somebody else to say, you know, what is my motivation behind this? Is this a good course of action? And then you go ahead with it instead of just fretting for endlessly for days on end. What should I do? What should I do? Um, can I do that? Or is that testing God? Well, just look at what God says and then go and make a decision and work with it. Yeah. And, and so a big part of that is with the testing of God is it's going to be come down to faith. Uh, so then that's the next question. Faith is a difference between the two kinds of testing mentioned in Matthew 4, 7, that you quoted Jesus with the devil and that I quoted from Malachi three ten. So what is faith according to Hebrews 11, verse 1? Uh, no, I don't have that one. Being now, now faith is be, now faith is yeah. being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do yep. not see. So what is faith then, Peter? Yeah, so faith is trust. Uh, faith takes God at His word, and um, and what He goes on with the rest of Hebrews chapter eleven is He describes all these. You know, He begins with the creation of the world. By faith, we know that the world was formed at God's command, um, even if. Even if all the scientists of the world rally otherwise to say that that the world came out of a big bang um, or you name it, um, it is by faith that we know this. It's not it is something that we go based on the word of God, um, not on the basis of whether we can prove it or not. Yeah. And fear then can be the enemy of faith that, you know, God tells us numerous times in Scripture uh, to because he knows that our natural inclination is to be afraid that he's going to tell us over and over again, do not be afraid. Think of how many times the angels say that, for example, do not be afraid. Uh, and it's important for us to understand that just like anger is not necessarily a sin, because Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. He says, you can be angry. Jesus was angry when he overturned the money changers tables. He was angry with the Pharisees a lot, but he didn't sin. It's the same way with fear. Fear in itself is not a sin. Fear is an emotion. Uh, it, it's like I use the illustration in the book of, you know, the check engine light, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's telling you, it's warning you, okay, there's something here. Uh, I, so now with the book I'm on, Peter is uh, Mrs. Frisbee and I think the rats of Nim. So it's, a, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's the secret of Nim, you know, I, and, you know, there they talk about, you know, the mouse and the rats and uh, dragon, the cat, you know, that's the thing that they're worried about. And so, you know, they notice, you know, fear, it's a good healthy fear of, of the cat, but you can't allow you know, I'm at the chapter now where they're going to be putting the sleeping potion in the cat's food so that they can do the work of moving uh, Mrs. Frisbee, the mouse's house, so that Timothy, who is her son, who is sick, can be can be saved. But if, you know, if fear overwhelms them because they're afraid that dragon, the cat's going to eat them, they would never do anything. OK, but if they don't have a healthy fear, they would just walk up to the cat and, you know, then it would be, they'd be eaten. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a balance. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, just generally when we're talking about fear, not just uh, fear of the Lord and the fact that we should be afraid of God and um, completely aware of our sinfulness and that we stand in his presence on the basis of his grace, um, that when we're talking in a general worldly sense, that fear really is a gift. Um, like that, that's the book, probably the book that I'll mention for this episode is The Gift of Fear, um, a guy named Gavin DeBecker, D-E-B-E-C-K-E-R. Um, and it's a little bit older. It's like 25 or 30 years old. And um, But Gavin DeBecker is basically the world's expert on, um, on fear and security for uh, political figures and celebrities. Um, and so his, his whole, he made his own company basically to um, take take the uh, the data that they get from like a stalker or somebody like that and analyze it so that they can come out with a re reasonable expectation of what is the likelihood of this person doing something violent against that you know president or prime minister or celebrity and um if whitney houston and kevin costner had used gavin de becker's service then we wouldn't have a movie right <laughs> and, and that's so, a movie i've never seen so, uh I, I have it. I wouldn't, I mean, I'd recommend, um, probably the untouchables if you want a, a good, uh, Kevin Costner movie instead. Um, but I guess the whole point of all that is that in his book, Kevin or Gavin DeBecker is saying that fear has a purpose. Fear has a place and we need to pay attention to it. But then his whole, um, professional effort are mitigating the fear and reducing the actual risk. And so even biblically, we recognize fear has a place if i'm afraid of something it's a check engine light on your car um don't suppress that emotion just because you think it's a wrong emotion accept that emotion for what it is it's it's just saying hey there's something you should look at here what is it that you're afraid of yeah, don't and then you can follow down that path yeah uh don't ignore that warning light uh don't put a piece of black electrical tape over it so it doesn't bother you no it's telling you it's probably the emission system anyway <laughs> It's telling you something's wrong. And that's what fear is. It's telling you something is wrong. But you go and get, get it checked out because if you ignore it, it can ruin it, it will eventually ruin your car. Um, but if you, you know, if it's just an oil change and so forth, oh, and I can't go anywhere with it. Well, now, you know, now you're not driving it at all. And so you have mm -hmm. to balance everything out. So, last question for this then. Relying on the government to provide safety and security can lead to worshiping the beast out of the sea. So what do you think on that, Peter? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, because because at, at every point, you know, humans are spiritual creatures and we can never get away from that. We can never get away from that fact and that reality. And, and when we're talking about emotions, um, <sighs> I'm not sure that there is such a thing as something that is purely emotion that does not have a spiritual component. Mm -hmm. um, hunger, maybe hunger is an emotion. Um, maybe it, maybe it's just a physical sensation that I feel hungry. Um, but even there, even when we're talking about hunger, there is a spiritual component to it. Am I fasting right now? Because it's going to be Lent. Um, when we talk about emotion, we talk about love. We talk about fear. We talk about um, talk about trust. Uh, that that's kind of the big question for me which emotion is there that does not have a spiritual component and so 
one of the, the main drivers of our lives is how do we manage these emotions? How do we deal with all of these emotions? And if somebody comes along and promises a tax cut and they promise to take care of everything that it is that we are afraid of, and then their cronies in the media or they themselves will say, here's something new to be afraid of because it's been three months since we've had anything new and terrifying, um, then they follow through, but we've got the solution that that is a spiritual endeavor. People call it politics. I'm, I'm saying that's a load of um, baloney yeah. because all that is, is trying to use the inborn inherent spiritual nature of humanity and to use that as a powerful lever for getting their votes, manipulate them through fear. However, however you want so that they worship, if not with their hands, at least with their hearts and at least with their votes. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Notice how, like you said, politicians, notice how the media, how they will frame any kind of story to stoke fear in our hearts. That's the beast out of the sea. That's the persecuting government that will use that tool of the devil, the dragon who controls the beast out of the sea. They will use that tool to gain more power by taking more freedom from us, and then what they're doing there also is uh, because we have they're increasing our fear, they're going to lead us to trust in them as the government more so than in trust for God. And, and they'll so lead I, us. I mean, my question then, um, and, and you kind of notice this in if you watch any of the news at all, you've been voting for a long time because you're like 53 years old. Yeah. <laughs> And um, and how many how many elections now have you voted in that were the most important election mm -hmm. of your entire lifetime? Yeah. Um, you know, I just heard that when I was you know um, I was at the gym using an elliptical because I didn't want to get hit by crazy drivers, and uh, I was reading the closed captioning on the two or three different news shows that they had running um, on mute, and um, and one of the guys was almost laughing. He's like, well, yeah, this is the most important election in our lifetime. And I know we've said that before, but we really mean it this time because every election is more important now. What is that? But trying to demand worship when the worshipers are growing lackadaisical and they aren't showing up to worship at the voting booth. Yeah. And how, uh, how much have we Christians bought into that as that is my civic duty as something greater than watching out for my fellow Christian and sitting next to you in worship and communing with you. Yeah. And with civic duty, this is one of the things that I have with pastors saying, well, it, because they have an issue with my books, I'll have an issue with them is because they will often say, well, uh, the book and so forth and what you're, what you and I are talking about, that's too political. We, we vote. No, that's one thing you do once every other year and once every four years. That's not fulfilling your vocation as a citizen. There's a lot more than just that voting that one thing that one time. Uh, with this too, I don't know, do you know who Mike Rowe is? Yeah, Dirty Jobs. Dirty Jobs, yeah. So uh, and I listened to his podcast and so forth. And one of the things that he said, and I'll share this link uh, later on on, on Facebook uh, on the page, uh, he came uh, in 2020. He, it was very early in saying this uh, because people were saying safety first. And he said, no, it's safety third. And the key is, and there are people that were pushing back. It's, well, you don't care about safety. Then said, no, because he said, if people 
make it that safety first, they'll never do anything. Okay. Because you'll never go running outside, Peter, or even go running in the gym because you could get hit on the way to the gym or hit while you're running. I would never go biking anywhere because I'd have cars on one end or from out in the country, I might have geese attacking me. That's one of the things my daughter's worried about. We would never, ever accomplish anything because safety first. And so he just said, mm -hmm. you know, it has to be safety third. And in the, in the story, and he's got several links on different times he's written about safety third. But in the first one that he talks about is when we have 40,000 people that die every year on the interstate from car accidents. We have if far we, more than that. <laughs> yeah, well, that was his example. But he said 40,000 people. But he said, if it was safety first, we would lower the the a speed limit everywhere in the United States to 50 miles an hour. That way, if you if you did get in a car crash, most people are going to survive that. But we have said as a nation, 40,000 people dying a year so that we can drive as fast as we want, pretty much. That's an acceptable risk. Mm -hmm. And he said, we do that with that we do that in the workplace uh you know that's one of the reasons why we haven't gone back to the moon and so forth because it's become that we're too safety first we're too risk conscious we don't want another uh challenger explosion of a teacher dying where the whole nation is watching and whatever else i've seen some you know just watched the martian and read the book a few months ago so that's on my mind but we don't do those kinds of things anymore because it's safety first and that was kind of the mentality for all of us as christians and as citizens during COVID. safety first and we never did anything we just stayed and watched uh you know our i said on top of page 168 because we have our phone netflix and amazon we're fine and then we end up looking like uh we're on the 700th anniversary of the axiom in wally where they're all Whoa. fat <laughs> and just sitting there in their easy chairs that are floating around, uh, just eating and watching TV. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry. I think I had my uh, my stats confused between car crashes and um, and heart disease. The okay. heart disease, you know, car, um, strokes, heart attacks, um, cardiac arrest, kill approximately six hundred thousand people per year. And statistically, that is that is far more people than. Um, if we treated heart disease the way that we treated, you know, COVID, for instance, um, and the reaction to the pandemic, then I would say there'd be a whole lot more people on bikes. Um, <laughs> just to leave it at that. But I think, you know, just perusing some of micro and the way he puts it, he puts it in a very straightforward, logical way. Like, um, you know, he's talking to the guy DuPont and the safety officer DuPont is like, well, you know, safety first, that's the thing. And Mike turns to him and says, are you working for free? Well, no, they pay me. Okay. So maybe money is first. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then I forget what, what the second one is, but, um, he just has a very whimsical way of putting it that, yeah. that catches you off guard just enough. Yeah. So we will wrap it up here. Uh, one of the things that, uh, ask you to our, our viewers and listeners uh, to comment uh, specifically with some ideas for the second book. Peter and I are starting to throw around some ideas saying, all right, uh, I think it's time because we're almost done talking about this book. So we have to have something else to talk about. And what P Peter and I were 
discussing is that when we finish the book, because we're only a few chapters away from being done, and we want to continue doing this, is we're going to start outlining the book. So we need your ideas of what uh, the sequel is going to be. And then the when we're done talking about this book, that we're going to start laying out the framework framework for the sequel, and then probably discuss it on the podcast, and then turn that into a co-authorship of the second book, whatever it is. So give us your ideas, and Lord willing, uh, God will give us the right words again to write uh, write the second one. All right, and we'll wrap it up here, and Lord willing, we'll see you next week.